Hello. Welcome to the Activation Project. My name is Olivia Eden, and this is my co-host, Christina Murata. Christina Murata, the soon-to-be mama. We're really excited about that. Lots of changes have been happening over the last year. So many blessings, and it is a beautiful day today in Austin, Texas. We're so happy that the sun is out, and even more excited to share part two of this riveting, thrilling story. Uh, Christina's mother is telling us her story. Last week, we went over some of the early stages of her life, and in this second part, she's going to be talking about having Christina and her sister and what life turned out to be afterwards. Yes, it's going to be some amazing stuff. She is going to be sharing things that I did not know, and it's going to hit me directly in the feels, which is going to show a lot of vulnerability. It's going to open up some healing for shame and really give her a platform to actually see where a lot of these correlations are between her and I and help her to do some healing on her own. And then also gives me places in my life where healing is needed for me, which was astronomical. And I'm really happy that I got to see these things before I give birth. So it's truly magical and we're happy you guys are here. Yes, we are. And then once again, the theme for this season is going to be helping people to uncover the dark secrets from their past so that they can free themselves from shame and rewrite their future. And that's what you're going to see is happening in this story, which is amazing. We hope you guys love it. But at least we reconciled, and that's what makes me happy, knowing that he was sorry, you know, and to hear it from him. So I wanted to go back to a little bit about my birth. I know you said that when you're going into labor and Frank brought you to the, what is it, Tree Hospital or something? Is it Vista Hospital? I forget the name of the hospital. It was a tiny, it's a small hospital. Yeah, and that he brought you there and that he left you. Yeah. He wasn't even present for my birth. No, like it was an inconvenience. And he said that he work or that he was going to be late. Yeah. What happened was it was probably about five o'clock in the morning because it was right before Papa Pardo was going to go to work. I woke up and I felt like really sick, crawled out of bed. And I went to my neighbor's house, you know, right there on Fifth Street. Her name was Toodles. I knocked on the door, walked down the steps. I was holding on to the railing. There's only one, two, maybe like three or four steps, a platform and few more steps and there's her door and the light was on because I her daughter had to go to school I knocked on the door and she let me in and I was holding my stomach and she had a king-size bed in the living room and I laid down and I was holding my stomach and I said I don't feel good I think something's wrong and she looked at me she goes you're having you're in labor she walked you know over back and says Poncho Frank Carol Ann's in labor she needs to go to the hospital so, you know, they come, they get me, and they put me in the car. I'm holding my stomach. I'm thinking I want to puke out the window. And Frank's yelling at me because he's too cold to roll up the window. And I'm trying to puke out the window. And he was screaming at me, I'm to be fucking late for work, you know? And I'm just like, you know, gets me to the hospital, gets me in, in there. And then they put me in a wheelchair and he was gone. You know, then they put you in a room. I'm there in the room and I did it all natural. I didn't take any drugs, by the way. I'll have you know, because I didn't know you could take drugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm 18 years old. What do I know? 
And so Papa Pardo comes in, bless his little heart. You know, he's done with work. He comes in, he holds my hand and I'm right in the middle of a labor pain. Right in the middle of a labor pain. And I'm looking at him as I'm watching, I think, days of our lives, focusing on days of our lives, trying not to scream or cry or let him know I'm in pain. I think holding his hand may have told him that I was hurting, but I didn't want him to see me in pain. So he stayed with me for a while and then he had to leave, of course, because there was nobody in there with me. I don't think you were allowed to have anybody in there with you, actually. Was not being able to express your emotions or pain or what you were going through, was that a pretty common pattern that kept repeated in your life? Maybe. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Now that I think, don't express anything. You don't need to know. Seen, not heard. Yep. Seen, not heard. My boss does that to me when I'm sitting there at work or I'll go in. And he's, you know, looking at emails and I'll say something. The other day, he just went completely bonkers. Don't you fucking see? I'm busy. You can sit down and shut the fuck up if you'd like. And I just went and walked back in my room, turned off my light and left. So I guess you could say I'm pretty resilient. doesn't really faze me when people scream and yell. Well, that's a half truth. Because sometimes I can get frazzled. Most of the time, I think I just get used to the same pattern over and over and over again. In the beginning, it was hard. Now it's just, ah, oh, whatever. I got two feet. I can get out of here. <laughs> okay, so you said that you got up at 5 a.m. I was born at 8.01 a.m. So I came really quick. Oh, yeah. So then Papa Pardo didn't go to work. That's a good observation. So Papa Pardo probably didn't go to work. But he probably just wasn't allowed to stay in the room with you or maybe he didn't. Yeah, there was no one allowed to be in the room with you. And I'll never forget the nurse. I don't remember her name, but I was in so much pain. That nurse was so mean. She came in and says, you need to shut up or be quiet. You don't need to be screaming. A six pound, four ounce life is coming out of my nethers. She was not a very nice nurse. But you can see how that's a re-traumatization from her own childhood is that you're an inconvenience to us. You need to be quiet. You need to be seen, not heard, which is unfolding even more for her. Well, and even with the boss that you work for now, Christina ended up in a similar environment in the restaurant industry with, you know, the chefs yelling and stuff. So that's what happens is you can gravitate towards that same environment, you know, where your feelings and emotions are not valid. Well, if that was something like, I'm in utero, you're laboring with me and someone comes in and tells you that that's an imprint that I can feel through your emotions through you that gives that to me which makes sense on why all of my life I've had that same exact thing that same imprint that same trauma was given to me through that I mean it probably started before that but every single time that something happens it just reinforces it more and more and more and more and now knowing that knowing that that woman did to that to you during the time that you were having me I can go back and I can actually release that from me. So Mm -hmm. I'm not matched to that anymore. And I won't pass that on to my own child, which is wonderful hearing my birth story and knowing that I came into the world so quickly. You know, you were laboring for only like three hours. Oh yeah, you were very, very good. Brittany was probably just the same. I felt her come out. I'm telling you, you can have an orgasm. So you you had an orgasmic birth? Yeah, with Brittany. That's amazing. Yeah, because I didn't know what in the world that feeling was. I was like, this is a good feeling. I like this feeling. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, it was, yeah. 
That's amazing. Okay, yes, I'll take that one. I'll take that suggestion. (laughs) Thank you. And I didn't know you can have an orgasmic birth until all of a sudden, you know, you're reading tabloids or you're reading, I don't know, something somewhere out there. And you're like, I'm what? You get, I go, I had one of those. <laughs> wow. I've never even heard of that. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah, no, it's such a thing as orgasmic births. And I don't know if it overshadows or overtakes the pain, or maybe I was just, I was scared to I drove myself because once you get to like your eighth month, I guess you go to the doctor every week or I had to go every week and stuff like that. And I went into the doctor. I was feeling a little sick, just like my tummy hurt a little bit, just very little. It's like, oh, I got to go to the doctor. You know, you take your bath, get dressed, you do your makeup, you do your hair, put on a cute little maternity dress and cute little heels. And so I ended up driving to the doctor's. The doctor's is right across the street from the hospital. And so I go in and I'm sitting there and then I go in and I sit down on the chair and the doctor, he's looking at my belly and I'm just sitting there and he looks at my tummy and he goes, look, he goes, you're in labor. And I went, what? Whoa. Checks my diameter. And I don't remember how many diameters I was. Maybe it was like three or four or something. And he goes, well, why don't you just go walk across the street and check yourself in? I'm like, okay. So I walk across the street. Well, I get across the street and then all of a sudden that was it. Game over. I bent over in pain and I was holding on to a car. Someone saw me and then they called the people and they came out and they got me. Boom. There she was. And where was I during this time? Where were you? Maybe you were with Papa Pardo. No, you weren't with me that day for some reason. Maybe I left you behind. But one thing I can tell you, I didn't know that I was supposed to get a baby shower. I didn't know that I was supposed to get a crib and get prepared for a baby. When I came home with you, there was a crib, diapers, bottles, clothes, because I brought you home and had nothing. I had no clue. Who did that for you, Pardo? Yeah, my dad. Mm Mm-hmm. And after I was born, did they put me on you or did they take me away? Oh, they took you away and they cleaned you. They cleaned you up. How long was I gone before I got back to you? Long enough for them to clean you up. And then they, you know, wrapped you up and everything. And then they gave you to me. But they didn't, they, you weren't allowed to be in my room with me. You know, they kept you with all the other babies. And then they'd bring you in and I'd feed you and hold you and, you know, I had no idea what that, no one told me how to breastfeed. The nurse came in and, you know, gave you to me and, you know, showed me how. And thank God I had a lot of milk. (laughs) There was no milk. You didn't. I did not go dry. (laughs) (laughs) How long were you in the hospital for? Less than 24 hours. Frank came and picked me up. I think the hospital sent me home with a car seat and Frank comes up in his low rider and, you know, hurry up. Let me get you home because he had something to do. So was he present at all during that first 14 months before Brittany was born? Yeah, he was around. And what was our connection? Did we have a good connection? Did he like... Yeah, you guys connected very well. And you would cry when he would leave. I remember specifically being in Papa Pardo's house and being on the couch. And I remember him leaving once. And I remember 
it was like my world was falling like in a white tornado of like emotions. I have a very vivid memory of that. Yeah. Cause I do remember that we had a good relationship and that he used to bring me to the field and he had a van at one point and he was living out of a van. Really? Yeah. He had some sort of van that he parked near a forest. It wasn't huh. very long, but I remember it. Maybe it was the mm. houses. I don't know. I don't know, but I remember little bits and pieces that way. So what happened? So you had two kids, you had a kind of present husband or got, what were you guys married? Yeah. Present boyfriend, but also philandering boyfriend. And then your dad who was helping out. Did you start with being or what? I mean, I'm sure all of that was super overwhelming. Yeah. All I wanted to do was party. It was responsibility that you never wanted, that you never asked for either of you guys. Yeah. I don't know if I would say never, but all I wanted to do was party. I just wanted to be out of the house. So wanting to be out of the house so much, we were left with Papa Pardo. Either you would be with me and my friends, and I would take you guys with me, or I'd be at Papa Pardo's. And that's also the way that your mom raised you. It was exactly the same. She wanted to party. You were small. You fended for yourself. You know, it's just, it's modeling. Yeah. That's what, how you were taught. And during that time, so that was probably around two, one and a half, two. When did you meet Shannon? Frank, he was the one who met Michelle and Shannon and all them. Because I don't know if he was friends with somebody or whatever, or if they were getting stoned together or who he knew. I know that he was friends with Shannon, with my aunt Shannon. Like I knew yeah. he, he was. And yes. uh, he was actually sleeping. She, he was actually living with her for a bit, like staying on her couch. Okay, then that's the missing link. And then, you know, he would come and get you guys and take you there. And then he'd take you yeah, for a day. The audience, why don't you give a little like explanation of who those people are? And- so Shannon is my aunt and she is sisters with Michelle, who you will learn about a little bit later, who is my mom. Not uh, biologically. Not biologically. Carol Ann is my mother and Michelle is my mom. And then Shannon was her sister, who I was later named after and just called all of my life. So I was called Shannon Fox from kindergarten to about three years ago. He knew these ladies, or he knew Shannon, and then what happened exactly? From what I know is that he was working and that we would stay with Shannon because she had two kids around our age and that she would babysit us. Okay. And that's what I know. And that we, I remember, I kind of kind of remember the house. It was like all wood and stuff like that. So we were there. And then Michelle, who was Shannon's sister, older sister, started coming into the picture. And that she started watching us too. Because Shannon is the kind of person that would like watch somebody until like she looked good and then kind of like regret doing it and like be really resent it resent it and then be really shitty behind someone's back and then talk shit about them so she kind of passed this off to michelle and michelle couldn't have children so she was very like their babies i want them Right, two totally adorable little girls and so this was before they moved they were living around the same place. I want to say Napomo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were living in Napomo, and I remember that. I have really good memories. These are memories from when I'm like one and a half, two years old. So, and then from your perspective, 
on your side, what was going on at that time? I was out and about. I had a lot of hate, a lot of anger towards Frank and his family because nobody wanted to help. I didn't think Frank was going through stuff with his family. That's probably why he ended up on Shannon's couch. He's one of ten. Yeah. I mean, the sheriff of the town he grew up in. Okay. Wow. You know, so there's a lot of things behind the scene, you know, like the big family and no space for him. And I think the mom kicked him out. And then me being a little chihuahua, I need your help. So he did the best he could to help, you know, because obviously Shannon came in and was looking like the guardian angel savior. And then, you know, I got to meet Michelle and she was sweet and kind and you know oh if you ever need help with the girls and I just fell right and she told me exactly what I needed to hear or what I wanted to hear so that I could go be a selfish person and go party and have fun with no regret I knew that they were in a safe place because that's what I thought was happening you know and then one day I had called Michelle and you know she had came over and she had talked to me I don't know what I was on I was high I think I'm, I don't know if I was high on coke or no I wasn't coke I think I was just high like flying high I'll never forget it when she came into my Papa Pardo's house and and I invited her in. She's beautiful Mercedes though. Little two-seater Mercedes hard top. And I thought, oh my God, my girls are gonna be so well taken care of. And she told me, she goes, I'm gonna she goes, so you you know, you can get on your feet and figure out what you want to do. She goes, Let me take the girls, you know, for a little bit. And exact same thing that happened with Lucille. Now that I'm actually opening up, I just, yeah, I'm seeing it's like living the life all over it. I don't know. That's crazy. It's the exact same thing. And so I ended up, she goes, here, here's a paper. In case, you know, Christina and Brittany need medical care, I'll need this piece of paper signed. My attorney drew it up. Okay. And I got the pen and I signed it. To this day, I don't know what I signed. For all I know, I signed you guys right into her hands. It was legal guardianship. And then, you know, a week goes by, we talk every day and she'd tell me about, you know, the snacks that you guys are eating and what you guys are doing and stuff like that. Then all of a sudden she goes, we're moving. Okay. So I'd always ask for the address so I could go see you guys. Oh no, well, you can't talk to them because I'm going to put them in school. And then all of a sudden it was this. And then all of a sudden, you know, I got kind of wild and crazy. I thought I'd go to LA and see what would be over there, you know, and nope, that. What was your dad's reaction to the girls being gone? He was very upset. Like, how could I do that? I was like, oh no, they're going to come back. They're just going to go, you know, with her for a few weeks. And the few weeks turned into 15 years before I saw you. I have a memory of when we did move. We moved to Santa Rosa. And I remember we got put back in the house with you, Papa Pardo, and Baxter. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Baxter? Yeah, Baxter was living with them. And so this was... I was about one and a half, two years old, and we used to go to the fish market on Tuesdays, and he would get his gummy bears, and we would be left with Baxter, and that's when he started sexually abusing Sonia, or Brittany and I, in the bathtub. 
and I knew what was going on. So I was trying to save my sister. And I remember it happening vividly about seven times that I can remember. So Baxter, the same guy who molested. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can tell you the story there. So from my perspective, so what happened after that was I told someone. And then I remember going to the police station and telling the police. And then at the end, for some reason, I told him I jumped over a car. I was like, you did these things. And then we jumped over a car. I don't think they believed me really. And then when we got brought back to the house, I know that you were really upset. And then the police were called and then Michelle and her mom showed up. And then we got inside of her Mercedes and drove off and I never looked back. And that was the last time that I ever saw you. I completely have that memory buried. Now that you brought it up, I don't know how old I was, but that was the first time I took you to Child Protective Services. It was your dad. You told your dad. And the Child Protective Services came and they told me if I didn't say anything, that they would take you guys away. If Baxter didn't leave the house, Uh, my dad was standing there. So I had to go into the kitchen and I shut the door and I told Papa Pardo what happened. My dad came unglued. Your grandpa, Papa Pardo, got in his face and told him he had to go and he had to go now. And Child Protective Services wasn't going to leave until Baxter left. So that was a big old huge can of worms that had opened up. And all I wanted to do to not feel anything and the shame and the guilt of finally, well, not Finally, that was the first time or second time that I had said something about Baxter. And the reason why your dad believed you and did what he did was because I told him what he had done to me. And I never thought that what he did to me, he was going to do to you. So Child Protective Services drove me and you and Brittany to Santa Barbara to get you guys tested, you know, and looked at by a professional I guess if you a child molester doctor or whatever, I don't know what they do, but I was in the room and they had checked you out, you know, and Brittany too. And they concluded that you had been being molested. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't understand after all those years, me being a grown up, that he could do it to you guys. It did never crossed my mind. I lost it. I totally lost it. All I wanted to do was to drink. And I don't even know if I was getting stoned, but all I wanted to do was to drink. So I didn't have to deal with it. And Michelle, that's why I had called Michelle to let her know that this is what's going on. Can you come get the girls? Can you come get the girls and get them out of here for a while? Oh my God. I totally forgot about that. That's really heavy. That's a big thing. That's something that I think most people would try to run and forget and escape from a lot of Like, people. oh my God. So what was Baxter doing back there with you guys? Lucille had passed away and he ended up, you know, coming to live with Papa Pardo. And I believe I had moved home because I couldn't pay my $34 rent. So, you know, when you don't pay your rent, you get kicked out. I believe that's what happened. I don't know how I ended back up there. 
I know I lost my place, lost the furniture, lost, you know, lost everything, you know, immature and dumb. And I just go back home. And then that's what I did. And he was there. I had no idea until protective services came. You say you lost everything, like all your furniture. I've lost all of my belongings a few times in my life. Oh, yeah. Start completely over and having that happen and knowing that happened to me as a kid where we lose everything and have to go back to something. I remember Papa Pardo and Baxter as the tall, skinny grandpa and the short and fat one. And I love the short and fat one. He was the best. He was amazing. He gave, he used to give me gummy worms. He used to make me artichokes. Like what two-year-old kid likes artichokes? Like he would make me artichokes and <laughs> and he would cook me the food that I liked. And if I had a nightmare, he used to make me peanut butter and sugar sandwiches. That's pretty good. And then the tall skinny one was Baxter. Yes. We would hide under the bed and we'd hide from him. We were afraid of him. So he left and he was out of the picture after that. Yeah, he was gone out of the picture. Lucille's daughter and sister and family called me up. I went through so much ridicule. How can you say that? It's a lie in everyone. But my dad, Papa Pardo, stood by my side the whole entire time, regardless, because I think he probably knew. I don't think he knew, but he believed that I was telling the truth. And then it happened to us. Yeah, so I had to go through all of that with Lucille, with his daughters. You know, you're a liar. He's impotent. How can he, you know, do anything to you? I'm like, that's probably why he did something. So I just sat there and I just listened to him. And so they banished me from communicating with them whatsoever. Lucille's family was doing that after all you'd been through. You'd lost your daughters. What happened after that? Michelle moved away. The girls were gone. So I went skippity doo dah day to L.A. Then I ended up dancing in a strip club, <laughs> smoking crack cocaine. And oh, my God, what didn't I do? But I learned how to survive. Did you kind of do the same stuff that Mama Reba did? Did you have men and have people taking care of you? or? Yeah. I figured out how to do it. And how long did that go on for? That went on till Rodney King. 92? Yeah. I know it from the Sublime Zog. There was a riot in the street. Tell me where were you? Wait, you were in LA when the riots took off? Girlfriend, let me tell you, I was so scared. Rodney King riot broke out. I was what? Literally blocks away from Crenshaw Boulevard. I was in a house. I locked the whole damn thing down. I was high on cocaine. Horrible. Don't be high during a riot. I looked outside and home alone. Three bedroom house. Beautiful house. And all of a sudden, I hear some noises outside. I open up the window. They were setting a car on fire across the street. I just started crying. All I wanted to do was go home. The next day, after the sun came up, I didn't have a car. I got on a bus. I left everything behind. I did not care. I brought enough clothes or, you know, just whatever I needed to fit in a bag. And I hightailed it all the way back to San Luis Obispo. I bypassed Guadalupe and I went to my girlfriend's house in San Luis Obispo. And then I got on my feet and got a job and she liked to smoke crack cocaine. But I ended up getting a job. She and I lived together and she and I became lovers. 
and she cheated eventually. And so that went, you know, a whole nother direction. And then that's when I started to get myself, you know, together. Most of the time, I'd be looking for Christina and Brittany. Finally, you know, when you get your head out of the clouds and come back to reality. So I know that Loopy was a big part in that, though. Yeah. Did anybody ever find out? Loopy was Michelle's mom's boyfriend. She met him when he was 18 and she was 36. And they're still together now. But Really? Yeah, they're still together. Wow. I mean, they don't live in the same room. They have different rooms and they, you know. Oh, essentially your step-grandfather. Yeah. So what was your emotional state at this time? I mean, how were you self-soothing, you know? Because I know what it's like to be in those places where you're kind of indebted to these guys that are doing stuff for you and you're having to sleep with them. And I just, for me, I know I would just be like, oh, it's not a big deal. And I would just completely pretend like it either didn't happen or it's not a big deal. Like, this is fine. This is normal. But it, for me, it came out a lot and with like a lot of anger, you know, and I obviously, you know, substance abuse as well. But how would you get through that? Like, what was your emotional state? Did you have a higher power? Yes, I always ran when it got where I just couldn't deal with the emotion because I didn't even know what it was. I always run to a church. I always felt safe at the church. Not actually sleeping at the church, but, you know, going and helping. And, you know, even if it was a Catholic church, I've been through so many churches trying to find the right fit. And I found one in Aurora Grande eventually, but I would just cry. I would just cry all by myself. Just cry, you know, cry to God. It's what I would do. I did it the other day, as a matter of fact. Just cry to him. What was going on? Just being alone. Just everything that's going on in the world. And sometimes the boss can really push you to that edge. Like, do I really need to be here? You know, just a lot of emotion. My daughter's pregnant. You know, and I think about my mom. And every time I would ask her to come be with me. And she was, you know, it was just one of those days. Yeah. I'm really happy that you can connect to that. That you can cry and allow yourself to cry. Yeah. But sometimes that's the best thing that we can do. Sometimes I feel ashamed after I cry. Well, that makes you sense. Know, you know, does anybody hear me? <laughs> Did anybody hear me? Hopefully no one heard me. Yeah, be seen, not heard. <laughs> I know, there's a recurring theme here. Yeah, recurring theme. Imagine if all of a sudden I got a voice. <laughs> well, you know what? You're starting here. You have a voice right now. And what yes. you're sharing with everyone right now and the power it's going to be from sharing... Mama Reba's, what you know about her, what you're sharing now, and then what I'm going to share and the way that we can actually change our lives is going to touch so many people. We have people listening to our podcast in 29 countries. I know. I saw, I was like, oh, wow. I go, what about Monterey County? Are we included? (laughs) (laughs) So running to churches and stuff like that, because I know when I met you, you were really into that. No, I do know that you went to jail once. When was that? Once? Wait, how many times? I only know of one. <laughs> I'll send you my rap sheet. <laughs> now, the first time... Oh, that's embarrassing. The very first time, I was 18. I don't know if I was stealing makeup or baby wipes or something. You know, I was at Long's Drugstore. They don't have a Long's Drugstore anymore. Oh, I just thought I'd just have a bag and just start putting stuff in it. 
And I walked out and they got me. Well, guess who was with me? Me? Yeah. So they ended up, I think they gave me a ticket. And then I had to be scheduled to go to jail for 24 hours. So Papa Pardo wouldn't know. One of my really good high school friends, Lisa Santana. I went in probably like five o'clock that night. And then they let me out five o'clock the next day. So I told Papa Pardo that I was going to go spend the night. You know, I'll be gone overnight. And so I left you with her, you know, and then I took me in and then I got out and they picked me up. So I don't think you missed me. You were in good hands with Lisa. She was a really good friend. And she's still my friend today. Yeah, that was that. But a lot of it was because drugs. I've had three DUIs all before 24 years old. And what was the longest that you were in jail for? I did a year in San Luis Obispo County in, what is it? Maximum security was jail. And they caught me with a pound of marijuana. I don't know, a lot of acid, (laughs) some shrooms, and a big softball of crystal meth. I had just scored. I was getting ready to break it all up, to go get it sold. And yeah, they took me away for a year and I got out. Then I was like in my 30s. I think I had already met you. No, because I was young when I did that. I was in my 20s. Didn't you go to jail for a while for stealing? Yes. When I knew you? I think I saw you after or maybe before, but I was living with Ricardo at the time. Yeah. He used to sell a lot of drugs and he had went to federal penitentiary for being one of the largest distributors from Mexico all the way up to freaking I don't know where. And I ended up getting hooked and I really liked it. I was in my 30s and I went into Walmart again, high as a kite, high, 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 high as a kite on meth. And I was dressed nice, you know, hair done, makeup on. At least I thought I was looking nice. God knows what I look like, but I thought I was looking good and fresh and hot. And I go walking in there. I had money. That was the sad part about it is I decided to steal then to buy. So I went on a huge shopping spree. Thought I could walk out, you know, the garden gate. Little did I know that I had like two or three bags and thought I could just walk out, you know, like the back side over there. Oh, no, they came got me. And I ended up going to jail. And I think I went for like six months or a year or something like that. I think maybe six months. And then I thought that I was going to stay in there longer. But Ricardo got me out stating that she has a daughter and she needs to get out to take you know, he's very convincing or persuasive to get her to get me out. Well, I got out earlier and I ended up leaving him. I had enough time away. I had enough time to talk to Christians. I had enough time to read the Bible, enough time to get my head together that I finally had enough. I had finally had the goal to get away from him. Yeah, you probably had had quite a bit of time sobering up and just yeah, thinking straight. Yeah. All of these things that have happened in our lives, you know, they've obviously they've made us who we are today. And no matter how dark, you know, the nights that we've been through, there has always been, you know, something on the other side, like at the end of the tunnel, right? And a lot of times that comes in the form of people that show up in our lives 
who help us, you know, to get through. And they're basically like angels, you know, like mm-hmm. your dad, Pablo Pardo. What other figures did you have in your life that sort of that helped you get through or maybe situations or experiences that served as a catalyst? There's people that were at the church. They had a deliverance ministry. And so I got to sit, you know, I don't know if it took months, I think maybe like three months or so where you go and you meet and you sit down and you go through your life, you know, as many people as you can talk about as your sex partners and, you know, just the things that you've done and how you renounce it and you replace it with something else and you ask to forgive yourself, forgive them and forgive others. And then you go on and go through. And I've done that a couple of times. I think I need another overhaul. Another inventory. Yeah, another. Do they need to do another inventory? Because you know you do so well and you feel so good, but then you know things creep back up, and you're like, ugh. And you know what to do. It's just I choose not to do it sometimes, not all the time. You know. So Ricardo, during that time, I know that I turned eighteen, and I believe that was two thousand three. And I remember I was done living with Michelle. I had to get out. Like the moment I turned 18, I packed up my shit and I left. And I didn't know where I was going. I had someone come pick me up and I was like taking my Care Bear suitcase with me. And that's all I packed with me. I left everything behind, kind of like you. And I stayed with a friend, Juliet, who, you know, her family allowed me to stay with her. And I was talking to Loopy and Loopy gave me your number. Really? Loopy is the one that gave me your phone number. And I called, I want to say maybe it was maybe a month after, maybe less than a month, a couple of weeks after I turned 18. And I called you. Do you remember what was going on in your life? What was happening? How you were you feeling? Where you were with drugs, yeah. job and stuff like that? Yeah. I remember when you called, I was excited and broken and oh my God, just the flood of emotions. And I had no support. I had some support from Ricardo, but all I wanted to do, remember I came to visit you for a week? Yeah. Yeah. And all I wanted to do was to get to you. It's all I wanted to do. So if I remember, honestly, from that time, I was reaching out because I wanted to understand myself and also I needed help. I didn't have any money. I had nothing. And my friend's parents like asked you for like $25 a week, like $100 a month for me to be able to stay there because I was still in high school. Did I do it? Yeah. Wow. And then you came through and then I got Brittany, which her name was changed to Sonia. And I got her and we met you at my favorite coffee shop. And I remember like looking at you and I'm like, that we came from her. And like, at that point I was just, I was 18. So I was like, I want to drink. I want to party. I want to have fun. And I want stuff. So what can she give me to make up for what happened to me. And I was like, I want this, I want this. And I was looking for monetary help. I was looking for gifts. And I skipped over the emotional part of it because I was like, just give me what I need during that time. And I remember you showed up and you were the cool mom. You were getting the drinks and we were drinking Sky Vodka and you know we were going out and you're like, let me take you to get your lip pierced. And if you want to get a tattoo, I couldn't get an ID at that time. So you had gotten me my birth certificate. Is that when you realized that you weren't Hispanic? 
or black or whatever you thought you were. <laughs> okay. They never told me what an ethnicity I was. He was telling me I was Puerto Rican growing up. And then people thought I was black and white. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm mixed and I'm mulatto. And I didn't know. So people would ask me if I was Puerto Rican. I'm like, yeah. And then I was like, it makes sense. I'm not that spicy. Like I am. <laughs> so and then you finally told me you're Native American and Filipino. And I was like, oh, okay. And Oki, you know, you're Oki White from Oklahoma. And I was like, all right, makes sense for me. <laughs> uh, and I remember that we connected and we were talking and I was very emotional and stuff. And I just wanted to tell you about all the things that I had gone through. And I know that was really hard for you hearing all this stuff after 15 years of not seeing me, knowing that, you know, this woman that showed up in a brand new S series convertible coming to get us saying that she was going to give us a better life ended up giving us a worse life than you could have imagined. And I never really asked you for your perspective on the time we spent together for that one week and how that felt for you. And because shortly after that, that next summer, Michelle actually sent both me and Sonia Brittany to come out and stay with you with Ricardo at that big house. So what was going through your mind during that time when we very first met for the first time in 15 years? I was just happy. And I wanted to give you everything you wanted. I know. So I thought that that, and that's and I thought that that's how you're supposed to show that you love somebody is by giving, not, you know, sitting down, sharing emotion or talking. That's what I thought love was, was to give material, not your heart. Mm -hmm. Right. You had never been modeled how to do that anyways. You hadn't been shown. No one had done that for you. No one had shown Christina how to do it or shown her how to ask for her needs. You had a lot of shame and guilt, I'm sure, you know, like you had said from... Yeah, it's not a strong foundation for bonding. So that next summer, we went and stayed with her for three months. I was out there with her. It might have been even that year. I think it was that year. It was that same year because I had just turned 18 in April. And then we had gone out and then we went and visited you for like two months. And she was living with Ricardo. And at that point, I could see the cracks, like the cracks with her life. Like there's something else going on here. They would disappear. They would stay overnight at places. I was like, there's something going on here. And I was like, I want to smoke pot because I love pot. Like I was like, pot is my thing. And I was like, I'm a big fat lesbian and I don't care who knows. And I was just like, I cut all my hair off and was just this really alternative girl and stuff. And I remember you just trying to get certain needs met and then we weren't really listening and stuff like that. And we kind of like, we were connected, but disconnected. And during that time, as you know, Ricardo sold drugs. I wanted to go out because I just turned 18 and I was like, I had never been out to a club. I had never gone out. And I went out with him one night and he took me dancing and stuff like that. And he used to call me Changita, which was, he used to call you Changa, which is monkey. And then me little monkey, because we were the same. And he would make comments about my body. And I was like, no, I like girls. Like, leave me alone. And then that night I told him I wanted to smoke pot, but he handed me the pipe and it was meth. And that's the first and last time that I had ever done it. And then he kept me out all night and he took me to a hotel overlooking the ocean the honeymoon suite at the best western there and uh, tried to get me to do stuff with him inside the hot tub that was there 
it was like a really big days. I don't really remember very much, but I just remember being on the couch and it felt like my life was going down the drain. And like, there was the girls gone wild on the TV playing over and over and over and over and over again. And I just remember coming back to the house and you knowing something was up. You're like, what the fuck did you do with her? And then I got in the bathtub and I hadn't eaten anything in like a day and a half. And my legs were purple. And the only thing I had like half a burrito and a glass of milk. And then I just wanted to stay in the room. So during that time when that happened, what did you see? What was going on for you? What was going on was he shouldn't have done that, one. And I knew exactly what you're saying is exactly what he did every time he went out. The girl's gone, we yeah, just the whole, what, what you described is exactly what he did with me, what he's done in the past. And I was beside myself. I was livid, you know, and he tried to deny it until finally... Yeah, you told me. And then... I was really ashamed because he told me it was pot and I believed him. And then it started to happen and he's like, oh no, it's fine. It was very coercive. And I kind of trusted him because it was his house and it was like his stuff and he was taking me places. And I was like, okay, I have to do what I'm told. And then I know shortly thereafter, we were all sleeping in your bed once. And I remember I told you that he inappropriately touched me during that night. And I freaked out and like ran out and it like traumatized me because it brought back a cascade of stuff that happened to me as a kid. And was that the beginning of the end of your guys' relationship or? Yeah, that's when things started to go a little, you know, the trust, the, just everything just started to go south. Little by little by little by little. And then finally, because I didn't have the strength myself to leave. Every time I left, he'd always come back and he would get me or he would find me and get me. I mean, I would run and literally hide, but he would come get me. He'd find me. I was scared. But was he physically abusive too? No, maybe once. Not really. It was more the silent treatment. Messing with your mind. And the condemnation, and I don't know, it just... So how did you break free from that? Was it when you went to jail? Mm-hmm. And that's when I gravitated towards church and, you know, doing deliverance and doing my overhauls and... Oh, yeah, I remember when that happened because you changed all of a sudden. I was like, I don't know who you are, but this is, I don't know, if this is a show or, you know, it was a switch that flipped and I was like, weary and I was like, okay, so I... Yeah. I kind of pushed it away because I didn't know exactly what was going on. I know that, and the phone agrees. <laughs> <laughs> so I know during that time, uh, after that stuff happened, that was 18, we kind of lost contact for a while. 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, for about six years. It was very small amounts of contact between you and I because of that situation. I was like, she wasn't ready for us to come back in her life. I don't know what was going on. And then Sonia, Brittany committed suicide. But until that point, what was it that you were doing during that six years? How did your life change? What were you going through? I don't know. I think I was just trying to get away from everything and everyone and just stay focused like on myself. And I don't even know what focused was. But just to get rid of the past. And how was your relationship with Mama Reba, with your mom? We talk, 
or maybe once a month or whenever I would call or she would call and stuff like that. You know, I'd go visit her and stuff, take her out to eat, go get her groceries. I know she was on a, you know, very low income, only makes like $900 a month or whatever from all of her pensions or social security or whatever. And so I'd go and hang out with her, but I wouldn't go in the house. That was just my thing. And that's why come March, I was like beside myself that I could have been a better daughter and gone in there and what are you doing? My OCD would have kicked in. Now we're up into the point where I was 24. So then you were 42 at that time. Um, 42. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) 42? What was I doing? I let me pull out my resume. What was I doing at 42? I don't know. At that time, when I called you and I let you know about Brittany, Sonia, um, what happened. Oh, I was in a good place. Mm-hmm. I was in a very, 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 very good place. Mentally, physically, emotionally. That's when Obama was handing out the stimulus checks and the economy hit. That was 2008. When she passed away, what year? 2010. 2010. I was in a good place at that time. In 2010, I ended up flying and I had called your dad to go with me, but his wife at the time said no. So I ended up going by myself and all the ladies that I was part of a group, you know, there was a Christian group of ladies, probably about six to 10 of us that would meet once a week. Well, when they found out that Brittany had passed away, they were the ones that gave me, that pulled together the money for me to go. Or I probably would not have been able to go because I was unemployed at the time. And, you know, and I was thinking... You were in well, place mentally, like you weren't on drugs and stuff like no, that? Cool. No, no. Yeah. Complete nothing. Just flying high on Jesus. And they paid for her to come to the funeral? Yeah. For her to come, and then she stayed with another woman from church there. And I remember mm-hmm. my ex, you know who I'm talking about. We went and picked her up. We had dinner at Ruby Tuesdays. We talked and stuff like that. And then that is when I gave her a puzzle piece that said love on it. And I said, you are my last connection, my last blood connection to my sister. And I see so much of her in you. And... I don't want to lose someone else that I could have a connection with because of all these things in our past. And I said, I'm ready to take a step forward and have an actual real relationship with you if you're willing to do that with me. As long as we can have boundaries, we can move forward. And she said, I want that more than anything. I want to say that was like the beginning of our real, actual relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. I remember that thing. To this story, it's pretty miraculous that you guys have a relationship after everything that you've been through. And I would like you guys to speak to how you've been able to have a relationship and what advice you would give to other people who struggle with their family. Well, me, I've done a lot of healing work in regards to that. She's very good with me. She's okay with me being angry and upset. She allows me to tell her what I do and do not like. She's very good at taking those things and not being too upset with me when I share my true and honest feelings. A lot of the time because of the way that she was brought up. But now we're getting more into a space where I'm asking her about her. Because before, I know it was more of a one-way relationship where I was talking at her and telling her about these things. 
And that what I was missing is that she's a human on the other side that went through almost the exact same stuff that I went through. And sometimes we talk more than other times and sometimes we're really close. I know that when my father died and we we spent that time together, we were like best friends, thick as thieves. I don't put any expectation on our relationship. I don't put any parameters. I just operate from an honest standpoint. And, you know, I want the same from her. I know for her that she wants, I mean, if she could talk to me every day, she would love that. She could just say, (laughs) if I would call her every day on lunch break just to say hi for two minutes, I think that would probably make her the happiest person in the world. And now knowing a little bit more about you and seeing you in a different light through this conversation and you sharing and being open and vulnerable, that makes me want to connect to you and give it to you more. Because before I was so stuck in my side, you did this to me. And now seeing more has kind of opened me up, but it's basically being able to share my emotions with her and for her to be able to accept that. And then always coming back for more, no matter what happens, if there's a blow up at Thanksgiving, if she doesn't like something that I'm doing, or I don't like something she's doing, that we always come back together because there was a commitment that was made on that day. On January 24th, 25th, there was a commitment that I made to her to actually having a relationship and I meant it no matter what, even if I don't like things. Wow. So from your perspective, if you want to answer Olivia's question, how do you... Yeah, because here's the thing. It's like the problem I see with a lot of kids, children not being able to make things right with their parents is that their parents don't want to hear what their kids went through because of all the guilt that it creates inside of them. They cannot fathom that they fucked their kids up. That's something that's too hard. We did the best that we could. Like they don't want to look at it. They don't want to hear it. And so I think what would be super valuable for other people is to hear from you because what I see is you listening to Christina's story and you heard everything that she went through and you don't immediately defend yourself. You know what I mean? Like you really hold space for her, which must be incredibly hard for you to do. It takes me a while to process, you know, and I think that might be a good thing in some instance, like this one, is because it takes me a while, you know. I wish I could be super duper witty and right on it and stuff, but I guess through the way I've been raised is to sit and listen. But sometimes when I sit and listen, I've learned to not listen. But in this instance, You know, it's like, oh my God, what we're doing is making me want to pull out my application (laughs) and just go through so I can do historically, you know, give Christina even more information to assist her to be the best mom, you know, I mean, a spectacular mom. And in the process, you know, there is shame and there is guilt on my behalf, but I think you know, the truth sets you free. And I hope Christina has more questions, you know, because I know that this is a lot for her too. So I'm sure I have lots of gaps where, I mean, I couldn't go, you know, unless I wrote it down, like, okay, in this year, you know, I could give her another level of understanding. Like, oh my gosh, this is what I really was doing. I still have all my old photos from kindergarten to eighth grade. You know, so I could probably look at those and 
be like, oh yeah, this is what happened. By the way, I've always been a good candy seller. First through eighth grade at St. Mary's, I still have the newspaper articles. I always was number one or number two. I was always the top seller. My competition was, of course, the rich kid whose father bought all of his boxes while I was the girl from Guadalupe that walked door to door. When you go grocery shopping, they stick you outside. Yeah, I earned it. So I don't know where that came from, but... No, you're a hustler. Well, dogs are great for ourselves. Yeah. But the thing is, is like you were saying, yes, it would make me the happiest person in the world if I could. I'm more of a talker, even if it's just for hype. You you pick up the phone and say hello, and I'll be like, I'm at work. I love you. And hang up. That would be the best thing. Or, you know, or I can come up with my own little inspirational sentence. Some other people like texting. I could probably text as well. But no, I'm just, when you see your daughter's face and her Christina, you know, you're like, ooh. Hello. Looking around. Hello. <laughs> well, so what we're doing here, which is it's a really powerful thing, is we are actually changing the course of history. And that isn't obviously a big thanks to Christina and all of the work that she's done on herself to be able to actually connect to transformational forgiveness, to be able to sit here and listen to your story and to have the desire to mend this relationship with you. Because the truth is, is most people would probably, you know, be consumed with bitterness and resentment and abandonment and all of this stuff and just completely, you know, play the blame game, victim, all that. And they would be justified, right? Society would completely justify them for doing that. And that is how trauma continues to imprint itself. So by you coming forth, having the courage to be completely vulnerable and authentic, we are uncovering the past to free you from shame so that Christina can rewrite history and rewrite the future, right? For her child. Because it's been this, it started with your mom, her parents, got down to you, went down to Christina. And now through this, extremely beautiful healing process that's going on right now she is writing a different future for her daughter it's a pretty incredible thing to watch you know and and i just know that so many people are going to listen to this and it's going to spark that desire in them to heal and and get curious with their parents get curious with their family members about why things happen the way that they did you know, you said the blame game and all those things happen and really sitting down with your parents. Like if people were to do this and say, hey, where did your parents come from? How was your birth? What went on? What was said when you were born? Like when you found out you were pregnant, you know, like just finding out the different imprints and the different stuff in your life. Like for me, I have massive abandonment trauma. That massive abandonment trauma started when my father said, you need to get an abortion you know, and then when he didn't show up and that he left you and all of those things made me a match to those things in my life. And now I understand it. So I can go back and release all those things. So it's not going to be in my physiology. And once I do that, once I stop this stuff now, it's never going to imprint on any children that I have ever. Absolutely. So through the closet with the skeletons in it, you can actually free yourself and actually make a better world for everyone around you. Because if I'm not pulling from my sexual abuse 
my abandonment trauma and not being able to speak my mind or people pleasing. If I'm not putting that out into the world, then I'm not putting that stuff on every person around me. And I can even show up as a better person just as a human being. So, I mean, this right here, all the stuff that you talked about has put a dots and lines and places and conclusions and things that I can draw from that is going to change my life astronomically in any kids that I have. And it's truly amazing. And not to say that I haven't done massive breakthrough work and stuff like that. You know, the listeners, I recently became a trainer of NLP. I'm a certified master coach of NLP, timeline therapy, hypnosis, and a completion process practitioner. And I use these tools to help myself through all these things. And that, you know, if anyone out there needs these tools or they want to facilitate something like this with their family, we can sit down and have the conversation, go through your history, your family's history, see where those things are and let go of that generational trauma so you can show up better for yourself, the world, and your future children. Doing this is... I'm completely blown away by the stuff I didn't know about you. It makes me want to know you even more. And there's a compassion I have for you right now that makes me actually, I feel a little shame and guilt right now because I put so much on you and I was so angry at you and I wanted to use you and I wanted you to feel awful. And I was shitty at times. I was doing those things on purpose because I wanted you to feel how awful I felt. And I'm like, she was already feeling that. And she had already gone through the same exact thing that I did. And first, I'm sorry for that. And I didn't know. But now I know. And I can just already tell that this is going to bring us so much closer, knowing all these things. And I'm going to tell you, Carol, like if there's any areas that you're still holding on to guilt and shame and any areas in your life that are still being affected, because we want you to be healed so that you don't accept abusive bosses that yell at you into your life anymore. We're going to break that. We are breaking that pattern, that cycle of abuse, of chaos, of stuff that's still in your life because you don't need it anymore. It's time to let go of all of that stuff. And it's going to come with just, you know, forgiveness and empathy. And and you're going to see your life is going to change. But if there's anything that's still holding you back in your life, like we're here for you. We love you. And Christina needs you. More than ever. (laughs) Oh my God, that makes me feel so good inside to hear you say that. Is there any dots or things that you now see uncovering and talking about your past and hearing a little bit of what I see and, you know, the seen, not heard stuff and patterns that have been repeating in your life? It's history repeating itself. You know, as I'm hearing you talk and say your story and share, it just breaks my heart. It just breaks my heart. I thought that. I would be ashamed or you would be ashamed of me because my intentions in my life were one thing, but my actions, they don't match. And I will hopefully one day soon in the near future, they match up because I don't know, I just need to sit and process everything and just, you know, keep moving on because I need you too. Christina, I mean, I need you too, but then I need you too as in TWO. and i want you to remember that like absolutely no judgment here and honestly i respect you so much more than i even did hearing your story like a profound respect because you're a statistical anomaly the fact that you are here today 
so functional living your life as you are, you know, after having experienced everything that you did, it's a miracle. And you should be so proud of yourself. And yes, you made some mistakes, but a lot of people do. And you are making amends for that, you know, and that's the most that we can ask of ourselves. You know, we can't live in regret. We don't want to close the door on the past because we need to learn from it. And we need to be able to, you know, yeah, make amends for what we've done, you know, and take full responsibility. But that's what you're doing. And so you need to be proud of yourself. And from this day forward, walk in that power because your testimony is so powerful. And there are so many people that you can help just by saying it. So if we can do it, anyone can. Literally. (laughs) I realize the magnitude of y'all's repaired relationship. It's insane. It took us a while to get here, (laughs) but it's growing even more. And I look forward to seeing how it unfolds even more now that I know even more. Yeah, me too. Yes. This was your first podcast because you did really well. Oh yeah. You can have me on every year. (laughs) (laughs) I think people would like to hear how you guys progress. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a good progression at the beginning of the year because next year there will be a baby. Yeah, <laughs> Christina's pregnant, everyone. <laughs> the cat's out of the bag. One more week, right, to go before I could say anything? Um, I told him I wanted to do it earlier, so he said... Well, the podcast is coming out next week. Too. Yeah, he said that I needed a week. He said one more week, so it will be one more week. Well, we're just going to wrap up for our audience, but thank you so much. We really love you, and we hope that you can come visit us in Austin, Texas, ASAP. Yes. Bye, everyone. Wow, guys, wasn't that absolutely incredibly mind-blowing? For me, it was just astonishing to hear that story and just so beautiful to see Christina and her mom reunited after that long, long journey. I'm curious, Christina, what are some of the parallels that you saw between your story and your mom's? Well, first and foremost, that we are both saying by the same man, Papa Pardo, that this man that was actual no relationship to her, took ownership of her and took care of her and was present for her in her life. And then when I guess, I don't know if they had Planned Parenthood back then. They called and said that she was pregnant. He looked at her and was basically like, you better not abort that baby. And that he saved both of us. And he took ownership of both of us. And he showed us love that both of us had never really replicated in a man before, except for my husband that I have now. I also noticed that we were both molested by the same man around the same age. She was a little bit older than I was, so it's only a couple of years off, but it's still around the same time. I also noticed that in this one, I'll know a lot more about the parallels when I get into more of my story, so I'm not going to spoil it for you all. I also noticed that the scene not heard, that for me personally throughout my life is that the least amount that I could need or the least that I told anyone about my, the lowest maintenance I could be, the easier it was to get my needs met, which something was directly from her as well. I also noticed that this will become apparent later, but we both started working in the club at the same time in our life as well. And 
basically how we both had a lot of resilience because a lot of people that go through the things that we went through have a little bit harder of a time. They end up in rehab and things like that. We both never went to rehab, but she was extremely resilient and so was I. So we both scored really high on the resiliency test. So those are some big parallels that I can notice right off the bat from just her talking about my birth and hearing what she had to say about her mom and her and also seeing this stuff with Papa Pardo about him being you know, a murderer and being pardoned. And then that was the person that took ownership of me. That also is a reflection of something in my life that's going to be very interesting for everyone to hear too. But it was a beautiful experience for me. I learned a lot and it was the very first time that I was actually willing to listen instead of shouting from my pain and my abandonment, which brought me a lot of resolve around stuff with my mother and ultimately is going to be, bring us closer together. And for all of you guys out there that want to do something similar like this, we are always open to having families come on the activation project and do this exact thing. Even if you don't know much about generational trauma or what's going on in your life, or if you're just looking for some support, we are absolutely here for people and uh, we can mediate and really see what's going on and help you draw some conclusions and actually help you break through some of that stuff right here on the podcast live. It'll be truly amazing to do so and be there available for our listeners in that way. So after this podcast with my mother, I know that she kind of went through a little bit of a healing thing, is connecting with me around things that she can do around being seen, not heard, because as you heard that she has this repeating in her life with her boss right now. So coming up with a plan using my NLP timeline therapy, hypnosis, and all of those tools that we have at our disposal to help her break through those things is going to be another level of connection and helping not only myself, but her. Because once you remove that generational curse from the mother, it disappears and doesn't reflect through the whole genealogical line, which means when she heals, I heal. And when I heal, my child inside me heals, and then it's never going to happen again. And I'm just truly excited about finding out all these things. I'm about three months pregnant. So I have six more months and I'm really looking forward to finding any of those little things before my child comes into this world to really give them the best life that they can have, like their best foot forward and not have any of these looming things that can happen based off generations. It is said that we hold on to about 14 generations of stuff from both our mother and our father's side. So finding out what it is, is very important clearing that stuff out and we can help you here. Definitely. Yeah. There is hope for everyone. Absolutely. It's so beautiful to watch. Is it okay if we share about the spectrum? So, okay. I personally have been a magnet for people that are on the autism spectrum. People that have Asperger's, I make them all my friends. It's like a magnet every single time. And I never really put two and two together in that realm. Olivia's even told me before, she's like, are you like, that's all you attract. And I laughed about it. And I'm like, what? I really, really smart people that are like singly focused. So I saw something online about this girl that was talking about her autism and she was listing off all these things. I was like, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. And I'm like thinking to myself, wait, there's no way. I mean, I graduated valedictorian from high school. I can do all these things and stuff. And then when I started going into it about women, because women are diagnosed differently than men, that it became ultimately clear for me. I took three of the tests that they give 
in the clinicals for people like diagnosing. And I scored on the higher end of being autistic. And I was like, oh, this makes so much sense to me now. And it really opened up a way for me to actually understand my mind. And now that I think about it a little bit, the way that my mind works and the way that I have seen the world and stuff, it kind of acted as a superpower because I actually had to learn how to be like other people to be accepted, which means I'm very good at resiliency and I'm also good at adapting. So I can do that in a moment's notice, but then also I have a different way of thinking about things. And then I was like, okay, special interest. I was like, no matter what I do, I get obsessed with things like, oh, this cross stitching this month. It's sewing, it's cooking, it's like little things. And I can get so wrapped up into this stuff. My husband is autistic as well. So we found each other. And in our house, we look at it as the superpower. This is the first time I really come out about it. I haven't really told any family, any friends or anything like that, because a lot of times I'll get met with, well, you don't seem like it. Like, you don't seem like it. No, you're not. And I'm like, well, if you only knew. Uh, When I was little, I do this. I twirl my hair a lot. I shake my foot up and down and I also suck on my tongue. And basically I was like, oh my gosh, that's stimming. Like that is the thing that they have to do. And I was like, oh, I'm really sensitive to light and sensitive to sounds. And it just all clicked for me one day. And I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. But I'm happy that I actually know that myself. So for my kid, that I can be aware of the traits and the things, and then also aware of the different way that people think and fostering any kind of new learning styles or thinking styles and stuff like that. So I'm really excited to really dive into my neurodivergence and see it a different way. I wanted to bring it up too is because I know that I've read in several places that if two parents are on the spectrum, that there's a super high chance of their kid being. And I have a very strong belief that because you guys are going to raise your kids so dramatically different than they were raised, than you guys were raised, that your kid is going to have all of the qualities of being a genius, but not with that inability, you know, to be able to really connect. Absolutely. A lot of times when kids are autistic, when they're little, no one actually is in their perceptual reality because it's so vastly different than someone else. And then whatever their reality is made to seem bad because it's not like anyone else's. For me, in my relationship now is I get into the other person's reality. I see, hear, and feel, and I tune into their morphogenic field to actually know what's going on in their reality from their perspective. And it gives me a different way of seeing things because we generalize, delete, and distort based off of our previous experiences. And we all have different previous experiences. So we're all seeing different things in our own reality. When I was little, people used to tell me, you live in your own reality. Like that was just a thing. Like, I don't know what reality you're in. And I was like, I thought we were all in the same reality. I didn't realize <laughs> we thought differently. And I was just like, how are you not understanding me? How are you not getting me? It continued for a really long time. And someone asked me recently, like, well, you're really good at connecting with people and talking to them. I'm like, yeah, because that was learned. It had to be learned. I was like, you should have seen me 10 years ago. People hated me. They're like, your tone is off. You're rude. You just blurt things out. And I'm like, what's wrong with that? I'm just telling you like what I'm thinking. And it's really funny now to like look back and say the signs were there, but no one was looking. I'm happy I know what the signs are and I can interact with anyone just goes to show you that a diagnosis is by no means like the life sentence. It doesn't have to be whatsoever. 
you can take it to sort of understand where you're at. That doesn't mean it's who you are. And that's the problem with the world today so much is like it where we slap a label on somebody and give them a life sentence. You know, they feel like I'm going to be bipolar for the rest of my life instead of understanding that it might be where you are at right now. It doesn't mean that that is who you are and that there is so much chance for you to grow and to heal and to move on and to figure out how to work with the resources that you've been given. I love the fact that you said that because for me at first, I was like, I'm really afraid of telling people. People are going to tell me that I'm not. They're going to give me all this stuff. And I was like, me knowing personally for myself just gives me an insight a little bit more to understanding the way that I think that I feel and that there are other people like me and that I can use that to actually connect better with people. And that's all that it really is for me. Totally. As an excuse. I mean, sometimes I'll be like, hello, the lights, you know, if you just turn the light on really quickly, I get a little scared or I understand why I'm having that reaction. I don't just say, don't do that because I'm autistic, but I understand the reasonings why I have reactions that I have now, which is really great self-awareness. Yeah, it's a big part of knowing yourself, which is phase one of the activation project to activate your mind is to know yourself really and fully and to know everything about you so that you can navigate better and communicate better and connect better. So that's beautiful. All right. Guys, well, we will be back next week with Christina's amazing, incredible life story. That's a lot. It's going to be a lot of one for the records, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say. The first time that I've ever told it anywhere on a platform, it's going to be the first time that it's going to be like a full story. So I'm going to be very vulnerable and just hopefully this connects with someone and someone sees the massive transformation that I made in my life and wants to do the same because we're always available here for people that want to break through, that want to activate their mind and then bring that back to their family like I'm doing with mine. Then take all that stuff and bring it to the world, which are our mission here. And we're really grateful for all of you listeners and we have 29 countries now. Yeah. 29 countries. Thank you all. We, uh, it, it's, it, uh, it makes my heart shine. <laughs> Yes, it does. Thank you so much for listening, guys. We really, really appreciate you. And if you have any questions about how to heal from generational trauma, or you would like to come on with your story, please email us at become.activated at gmail.com. Absolutely. We love you and we will see you next week. Bye.